0: Climbing the world's highest peaks offers spectacular views, but also presents serious dangers. Our icy mountaintops are melting. In early July, a slab of the Marmalata Glacier in Italy broke off, causing an avalanche to crash down onto climbers below. At least 11 people died. Glaciers are melting twice as fast as they did 20 years ago, accounting for 20% of global sea level rise during that time that's nearly 3 inches. And that matters far beyond the icy terrain in much hotter places like the islands of the Pacific. Some island nations may be fully underwater in a century. It's 1A's Water Week. We're dedicating time to talk about how our changing climate is changing our relationship with water. During the series, we discuss flooding, drought, as well as access to water. But after the break, we'll discuss the global impact of sea levels and why it matters that the Earth's glaciers are melting. I'm Jen White, joining you from KUNC in Greeley, Colorado. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Send us your questions for future shows, or just let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We're starting off this episode of our Water Week series by discussing sea levels. Joining us from Copenhagen, Denmark is John Englander. He's an oceanographer and the author of Moving to Higher Ground, Rising Sea Level and the Path Forward. John, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, John. Great to be with you.
0: And joining us from Maine is Professor Paul Majewski. He's a glaciologist and the director of the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Now, how fast are the world's glaciers melting, John?
1: Well, Jen, when we talk about glaciers, I think it's important to distinguish just the glaciers, which you think of when you visualize a glacier in Alaska or in Colorado, but versus the ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica. And the real threat or danger for the world is the melting of the ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica. They're hundreds of times bigger or about 100 times bigger ice mass than just the glaciers, the isolated glaciers that you see in the Alps or Alaska. As the planet warms, of course, the ice melts, and it's happening faster and faster. And And the risk is really profound.
0: And Paul,
2: why? Why are the world's glaciers melting faster? Because of human activity. Greenhouse gas rise is warming the planet. Uh, Emissions of uh, dust, black carbon that are deposited on glaciers are helping with the melting. So we're doing many different things that are impacting the extent of glaciers.
0: Now, John, when we talk about glaciers melting more quickly now than they did in the past, I'll put that in perspective for us. If we're talking about 20 years ago, what was the the rate of melting like at that point in time?
1: Well, we're still at fractions of an inch, and it is confusing because it sounds inconsequential, like a drip filling the bucket— the bucket's going to overflow, and the drip is getting faster as the planet warms and as these ice sheets melt, breaking all records. But we get the real uh, hint at what what's ahead from the geologic past. We know that 11,000 years ago, sea level was rising like 10 feet a century. If we take three feet of sea level rise uh, as a, about a meter, um, that would move the shorelines inland in many places thousands of feet particularly in low-lying areas like South Florida, but even worse, places like Bangladesh and Vietnam, which are uh, just, just a meter or three feet of sea level rise, would largely put Vietnam underwater, for example.
0: Paul, when we talk about where we're seeing the fastest rates of melt, where around the world is that happening?
2: Primarily in the mountain glaciers. Uh, Andes, the uh, the Himalayas, but also around the coastal regions of the large ice sheets, Greenland and Antarctica.
0: Paul, Nepal is considering moving it to Mount Everest base camp because of glacier melt nearby. You climbed Mount Everest in 2019 to study the effects of climate change. What did you discover?
2: Quite remarkable. Uh, we worked on the our team worked on the highest glacier on Mount Everest, twenty six and a half thousand feet. And we found out that 2,000 years' worth of ice was missing. It turned out to be half of the volume of ice at that elevation on Everest. We were quite shocked, and we can demonstrate that that happened in the last 20 to 30 years. Following along with many other parts of the world uh, accelerating loss since 2000, but it was very remarkable to see it at that high an elevation.
0: Mm -hmm. And when we talk about this happening, I mean, what would it take to turn back the clock or or to slow the rate of melt?
2: To slow the rate of melt would obviously require uh, reducing whatever it is that's warming our planet, which are greenhouse gases, reducing the amount of dirt that gets onto glaciers. It's uh, uh, the likelihood of being able to uh, stop it is very very low. It will continue. There's no doubt about it. Places like uh, this highest glacier on Mount Everest will probably disappear within the next twenty to thirty years. The best we can hope for, of course, is to dramatically slow the melting.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, John, when you when you hear th- that this isn't something that we can really stop at this point, I mean, what does that mean for us as as humans living on this planet?
1: besides trying to slow the warming and slow the melting and slowing the sea level rise, we have to begin adapting uh, to be more resilient. And we've got to wake up to some Earth history that most people don't know. But sea level moves up and down tens and even hundreds of feet with the ice ages. This is not unprecedented in Earth's history. As Paul said, of course, we know at this point that we've triggered this super um, version of warming that's, that's beyond the norm. But just 11,000 years ago, sea level was rising at more than 10 feet a decade by nature. So we have to learn from the past to plan for the future. And the fact is for 6,000 years, sea level has been pretty stable. We assumed it was kind of permanent and sea level determines the shoreline. But what we found is that that's only been a 6,000 year uh, plateau, if you will, or the turning point in, in normal sea level rise. Sea level is going to rise for centuries, as Paul said. And we've got to start designing for a world when sea level is higher. As has happened in the past, 122,000 years ago, sea level was 25 feet higher than now, and that was natural.
0: The threat of the rising shoreline is particularly menacing for the world's 47 island nations, where more than 730 million people live. If sea levels continue to rise at their current rate, many may be uninhabitable within a century. That includes Tuvalu in the South Pacific. Last year, its foreign minister addressed the United Nations climate change conference, COP26.
3: In Tuvalu, our islands are sacred to us. They contain the mana of our people. They were the home of our ancestors. They are the home of our people today. And we want them to remain the home of our people into the future.
0: That speech went viral in part because Tuvalu's foreign minister was standing up to his knees in ocean water.
3: Climate change and sea level rise are deadly and existential threats to Tuvalu and low-lying atoll countries. We are sinking, but so is everyone else.
0: The video racked up lots of views, but did it make a real difference? Let's ask Christina Gerhardt. She's an associate professor of environmental humanities at the University of Hawaii. Her book, Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, comes out next year. Tina, welcome to 1A.
3: Great to be with you.
0: Tina, how pressing is the threat of sea level rise on low-lying islands, places like Tuvalu, Fiji, and Samoa?
3: Oh, this situation is dire. I mean, it it really is the question of these islands very existence and very future. I mean, just to pick up the thread from Paul and John, they mentioned current predictions are one foot by 2050. I'll add that they're three to seven feet by 2100 and you have low-lying island nations like the Marshall Islands, on average, they're about six and a half feet across. I think for your listeners, it might be helpful to know that islands, there are two types. They're volcanic islands or high islands, and like the name suggests, those are tall. And then there are low-lying islands that are atolls, and they're basically volcanoes that have sunk under the surface of the ocean. And they're a ring. They're typically in a ring shape. They're just that ring of the volcano. Volcano that remains, and they're super low lying, as the name suggests. So those are the ones most at risk. I think internationally, the ones globally, the ones that are most at risk, in, in addition to Tuvalu, which you mentioned, are the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, and then the Maldives in the Indian Ocean.
0: What effects are those those low lying island nations already seeing from sea level rise?
3: There's a there's a range of impacts. So when that that ocean water washes over the islands it salinizes the drinking water and it also salinizes the uh the the uh the soil and when that salt content gets into the soil it makes it really hard for people to grow anything in that soil and a lot of these islands are uh subsistence farmers and fishermen it means they rely for what uh they derive most of what they they uh what they eat from what they grow. So that kind of salinization of the soil is really important. The salinization of their freshwater aquifers is important because a lot of islands in the Pacific, this is also true for the Caribbean and islands off the western and eastern coast of Africa, they get their, their fresh water from rainwater catchment. So they, they actually gather rainwater or from freshwater aquifers. So they don't have rivers or streams. The low-lying islands don't have rivers or streams flowing through them. Um, So that would be one of the impacts. And they're already inundated. So we had a national emergency declared twice in the Marshall Islands in 2014 and 2018 because of flood emergencies. So this is something that's been going on over the past decade.
0: How are these low-lying island nations thinking about the future at this point, especially when we put it into the context that John and Paul shared that at this point, we really can't stop this process. We we might be able to slow it down, but we
3: can't stop it. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's the real crux of the situation. This isn't some future scenario. This is a current scenario. So um, right in keeping with your question, island nations in the Pacific are already grappling with this issue and they're taking a variety of actions. One of the things that they're working to do is to, Refortified their shorelines. So, mangrove forests, which have often been removed from shorelines, provide a really good buffer. They've often been removed for the tourism industry, which is what a lot of islands rely on for their income. So, the restoring um, mangroves, other kinds of um, natural buffers, this is also called soft engineering, um, which would include preserving and restoring coral reefs in the cooler climates, that often is. Uh, preserving and restoring oyster reefs, Um, and then there's hard engineering solutions, which I don't think are quite as effective that people talk about, which would include things like constructing seawalls. And one of the problems with seawalls is that anyone who's downstream from a seawall is going to be uh, experiencing the effects of the seawall, meaning erosion. So those are some of the actions that islands or t- nations are taking. Drastic measures that have been proposed for those four most at-risk island nations that I mentioned earlier include raising the entire island. So this is something that I know the Marshall Islands has been exploring. This is something that the Maldives in the Indian Ocean has been exploring. And one of the reasons they're exploring this, and this is pretty sad and pretty dramatic, is that you You need the island nations to still exist in the future, not only for the people who live there to have their island nation intact, but there are legal reasons why island nations have to continue to exist. One can emigrate, but a passport needs to have a place to be connected to it, to have mm. meaning, right? Um, so that there's there's discussion about that in the Marshall Islands.
0: Well, I want to touch on on something else you researched, Paul. Beyond causing sea level rise, melting glaciers can also release pollutants into the air. You just returned from a trip to Greenland to research that. What did you find?
2: Yes, uh, for certainly hundreds of years, if not many more years, particularly those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, have been putting a tremendous amount of toxic material into the atmosphere. Obviously, greenhouse gases, which have caused warming and therefore vector-borne diseases and everything, all these other things. But in addition to greenhouse gases, there are toxic substances like lead, uh, mercury, cadmium, uh, microparticles, and now, of course, microplastics, PFAS. All of these things have been accumulating for... Decades, in some cases and others, hundreds of years, uh, in particular the Greenland ice sheet uh, and also many mountain glaciers throughout the world. As these glaciers melt, this material is coming out. And when melt occurs, it typically allows the impurities to come out first. As a consequence, you can get slugs of toxic substances, which can be very disastrous to human and ecosystem health. Think of acid rain 30 years, 40 years ago. We know that lakes were being killed because snowpack was collecting pollutants, and whenever it melted, these slugs of toxic substances came out. So, this is yet another issue uh, that we need to be very cognizant of as we begin to think about where we will find clean water. Here's messages from Max and Siobhan.
4: I grew up bicycling distance from the Atlantic Ocean in Florida, and my parents and family are still down there. So, I am concerned and telling everyone, do not buy any property. Sell it as soon as possible if you live less than 10 feet below sea level. I tell this to my friends in Norfolk as well.
3: I live in Tarpon Springs, Florida, a block away from the water. I moved here 27 years ago and getting to my house from town was a lot easier. But now during the monsoonal rains that we get in the summer, It's quite the challenge.
4: I had my Greta Thunberg moment when I realized about 1979 as a curious kid that the ocean levels were rising into the water table. Yeah, I'm that kind of kid. I joined a concerned group of citizens to look into this ever-increasing problem. The city is trying, but we really need more help here. And I left Florida because I realized they will not talk about it and that is why they're doomed. They won't talk about it.
0: Thanks for those messages. We also got this email from Kathy, who says, I live in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and we're feeling the impact of sea level rise. But the city of Norfolk, Virginia, is really feeling the effect. Norfolk is the home of the largest naval installation in the world. The U.S. Navy is very concerned about the situation and even talking about leaving, which would devastate the area. John, is there an aspect of this where the U.S. military is is involved or impacted by sea level rise?
1: Well, sure. I mean, for obvious reasons, we built all Navy bases and Coast Guard stations at sea level right on the coast where the boats can, can function. And uh, so, so just even three feet of sea level rise would ha- is having a devastating effect. Places like Norfolk where... Um, sea level rise is happening faster and worse because the ground is subsiding the ground there happens to be just uh depressing a little bit because of plate tectonics. so they're seeing much faster sea level rise in the uh norfolk virginia beach area than the global average and that's why the naval station norfolk as your caller said is um is really grappling with this and uh, the Navy's very aware of it but how do you plan for that and uh Even things you wouldn't think of, like there's a refueling station in the Indian Ocean, Diego Garcia, that is an important strategic base for the U.S. military, uh, I think jointly with the Brits. And um, that will be underwater as one of the first places to go, which will affect our our, uh, global logistics for the military.
0: We also got this email from Susan who says, there's a little-known army post on the Marshall Islands. What is the U.S. military doing to help? Tina, are are you aware of any assistance the U.S. military is providing to these low, lower-level islands?
3: Um, that's a great question, and I think just picking up the, the thread from um, points that Paul and John were making earlier, I think the issue of U.S. military interests, I mean, Norfolk is one example. Um, the Marshall Islands does host, through the Compact of Free Association, it hosts the uh, U.S. military. It's where a lot of nuclear... Tests were carried out between 46 and, uh, 1946 and 1958. Um, so one of the concerns that I have and that a lot of Marshall Islanders have is that there is nuclear uh, waste that is uh, being held on one of the Marshall Islands. And with sea levels rising, that nuclear waste is actually at risk of seeping out into the ocean. In terms of your question about assistance, there isn't enough assistance being offered by the Global North to, to nations in the Global South. And at the annual UN climate negotiations, which I, I typically cover, and, um, that's something that they always raise as, a, as an issue. So in 2009, the Global North agreed to $100 billion per year starting in 2020 to be granted to nations in the global south to deal with these kinds of issues created by global warming, sea level rise among them. And that money has not been forthcoming yet. And Mia Motley, the prime minister of Barbados, was very forceful in speaking about this issue at the UN climate negotiations last fall. She asked for that money to actually be granted, but she's been working very actively to ask for debt to be erased, any debt that um, that island nations have around the world often is a result of uh, colonial legacies.
0: What preparations, Tina, are being made, if any, for the increasing number of climate refugees who who will be forced from their homes on island nations, with the understanding that they don't want to leave; these are their homes.
3: Yeah, that's right. I think this this point of of not wanting to leave is a very important one. The Pacific. Um, Warriors, which is an activist group that's pan-Pacific, their mantra is, we are not drowning, we are fighting, because they're often the ones, you know, with, with action being lacking from the global north, as I just mentioned, they're often already taking action on the ground. And there's a number of different things that they're doing to address the issue of climate refugees. I think, first off, there's the challenge of the term itself, right? It's not recognized in the 1951 United Nations Refugee Convention because climate change was not a recognized issue in 1951. But many leaders have started to take action. So in the Pacific, on the island nation of Kiribati, Tong, he was present from 2003 to 2016, He made climate change and sea level rise key pillars of his political platform. And in June of 2008, he made global headlines when he asked Australia and New Zealand to accept citizens from Kiribati for permanent resettlement, specifically as climate refugees. Um, Kiribati has already lost a lot of of territory due to sea level rise. It's removed uh, the residents from one village inland there's a couple of other examples i could give of actions that are being taken with regard to climate refugees there's a kiribati national who applied for asylum in new zealand in 2012 specifically as a climate refugee and he said that sea level rise as i mentioned earlier salinizes his drinking water makes it impossible for him to have fresh water to drink and also to grow food and His application was eventually denied. He appealed the decision, and then the Supreme Court of New Zealand denied the appeal. He argued that although climate change is impacting Kiribati, climate change conditions are not included in the 1951 UN Convention that I mentioned. Um, That said New Zealand has an annual lottery through which Pacific Islanders can apply, and that grants them access. Um, I'll mention another example, um, Anote Tong from Kiribati, who I mentioned, he coined this phrase when he was in power, he's not anymore. Migration with dignity. And he sought to provide secure housing for his country's people through that. And what he did is he purchased about 6,000 acres on the island of Fiji, which is a very mountainous island. It's about a thousand miles away, just in case his people ever needed to migrate in the future. But that's a decision that's also problematic because some people on Fiji have, have had to relocate due to sea level rise. So, you know, those are just a couple of examples. A more recent one of actions that are being taken is just last month, Pacific leaders who are affiliated with the Pacific Islands Forum, they met in Fiji and they formally endorsed the campaign for an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on the issues specifically of human rights and climate change. So, you know, that sea level rise is basically Uh, violating human rights now if approved that opinion would be non-binding but it could put pressure on the global north and polluting companies and the next step there would be in September when the UN General Assembly meets they would have to vote on that and a majority of nations would have to approve that in order to put it to the world's highest court so you know Those are a lot of different approaches that people have tried to bring attention to the issue of sea level rise.
0: Well, and Tina, just briefly, what do large polluters owe small island countries when we think about who's really causing climate change, who's putting the most pollutants out into the environment, and who's being most impacted?
3: I think that's so important to to think about and to discuss because at the annual UN climate negotiations, what uh, island nations and nations from the so-called global south will, will often say when measuring CO2 emissions is that the issue of historical responsibility, specifically that phrase, is so important to bear in mind. And that is that historically the larger emitters have been in the global north. So that would be uh, Europe specifically and and North America. Um, Pacific Island nations have typically emitted something around 0.02% of global emissions in terms of CO2 emissions. Um, figures for islands in the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean are similar. And figures uh, for, you know, say, China or the u s are are much higher. and i think I think historical responsibility is a very important issue to keep in mind.
0: We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember, you can also be part of future conversations. Just download the One A Vox pop app and leave us a message. Back to our conversation. Extraordinarily high temperatures melted 6 billion tons of water per day off Greenland's ice sheet over the course of one July weekend earlier this year. That's enough to cover the entire state of West Virginia in one foot of water or fill more than 7 million Olympic-sized pools. We got this tweet from Heather who says, My home is in Florida. Every time it rains, I have a lake on my doorstep. I'm dreading a bad enough storm that could flood the area. And Janet sent us this email. We live 40 miles inland from the coast of North Carolina and survived the flooding. 38 plus inches of rainfall from Hurricane Florence in 2018. In the meantime, all along the coast, more housing units are being built. These tenants will have to evacuate during severe storms. There are very few routes of evacuation. It's already a nightmare for those who have Lived here for generations. How can they be allowed to continue to build and sell housing with the potential of more sea level rise in these areas? John, what can you
1: tell us? Well, it's hard to say whose responsibility or opportunity it is to, to deal with this unprecedented crisis. That we have trouble even visualizing the idea of sea level being five or ten feet higher. Um, you can put it on the owners. You can put it on the governments. You can put it on the oil companies. But it really is a whole societal challenge we have trouble envisioning sea level being 10 feet higher. I mean, all of the things that Christina talked about are valid. But the truth is the ocean rising because the glaciers and ice sheets melting is going to happen. And we have to start um, thinking big and futuristically because the melting ice and the rising sea are now unstoppable. We should try and slow it. But we really have to get ahead of the curve and try and plan for the future. To give you one example, um, I'm working in a program with Puerto Rico, which is a very mountainous uh, island with high elevation, as many people will know. goes up to 4,000 feet. It's not like one of the low-lying islands. It's one of those high islands that um, uh, somebody else just referenced. And what we're doing is working with architects and engineers in a program called the Caribbean Center for Rising Seas educate them and teach them that if they'd like their buildings and homes and infrastructure to last 100 years, and their culture goes back about 500 years in Puerto Rico, that we should think bigger and we should start designing now for future sea level rise.
0: At last year's UN Climate Summit, 23-year-old Brianna Fruin spoke to the world's leaders imploring action on climate change. She's from the island nation of Samoa.
3: If you're looking for inspiration on this, look no further than the climate leadership of young Pacific people. We are not just victims to this crisis. We have been resilient beacons of hope. Pacific youth have rallied behind the cry, we are not drowning, we are fighting. This is our warrior cry to the world. We are not drowning, we are fighting.
0: Tina, how does climate change and sea level rise threaten the independence and self-determination of island nations, many of which long suffered under colonialism?
3: Yeah, thanks for that question, because it is tied in with with the, I mean, it's not, climate change isn't just a scientific issue. So the issue of colonialism of history is a really important one to to bear in mind. Um, It's tied in in the following ways. So many island economies are reliant on the tourism industry, as I mentioned, but also the military, which we've already talked about. It's a major employer, say for example, in Hawaii, it is a major employer in Guam. Um, One can think about other island nations. These are typically, uh, Diego Garcia was mentioned. Um, These are typically uh, islands that have some sort of a relationship to a major colonial or occupying entity, right? We don't use the term colonial for the U.S., but it is An occupying entity in Guam. It is an occupying entity in Puerto Rico, if you ask, you know, islanders. And so what that means is that a lot of the land has been taken up by the military. It cannot be used in order to raise food. And it cannot be used um, in order to have those islands be self-sustaining. To come back to your question, right? In order to be self-sustaining, it would mean they could grow their own food, they could generate their own energy. Um, A lot of islands that sit in some sort of a relationship to a colonial entity have a much higher percentage of reliance on that entity for their energy sources. So Hawaii, for example, uh, 95% of its food is shipped in. So if there's a hurricane or something like that, shipments come only twice a week. If there's a hurricane, those shipments are interrupted. And how do all the people that live there, tourists included, visiting get their food? Similar situation for Puerto Rico. Um, 95% of the energy in Hawaii is derived from oil that is shipped in. That's how they get their generate their electricity, which is ridiculous because they could be using solar and they could be using wind. Similar figures for other uh, Pacific island nations that have that kind of a relationship to a, an occupying entity or a formerly occupying entity. Uh, for other Pacific islands also in the Caribbean. So in order to have an independent nation, it actually means retooling the energy grid and it actually means retooling uh, the source of food. And a lot of work has been done in Puerto Rico um, in the wake of the most recent hurricanes uh, in order to actually retool both of those systems and be independent.
0: We just have a few minutes left here. Paul, what do our best predictions tell us about how quickly and dramatically glaciers will melt in the coming years contributing to sea level rise?
2: Well, an awful lot depends, of course, on how we emit greenhouse gases. But uh, I can add a, a discussion of a wild card in there, and that wild card has something to do with the global north, um, which obviously is the greatest polluter. But even within the global north, there are dramatic changes occurring that impact people who have had nothing to do with pollution, speaking primarily about the Arctic. And as the uh, as sea level rises in the Arctic, as permafrost melts, as sea ice decreases, uh, these people have fewer and fewer places to go. The wild card that becomes involved in this process uh, is the fact that as permafrost melts, it emits methane. Methane is 30 to 50 times more effective in trapping heat than CO2. So we might very well expect in the near future that even the models that are predicting one and a half to three degrees centigrade could fall short if we begin to actually emit via melting permafrost as much permafrost as there is available to be uh, be emitted. In addition to other, there are other wild cards involved in this process. We know that the planet doesn't warm evenly, uh, largely because of ice cover and the fact that ice can change dramatically. We can have regions which become... Ex- far more extremely impacted amongst those, of course, are the Pacific Islands that we've been talking about, the Arctic, which I just mentioned, and also the mountainous communities where their water resources are decreasing. So to assume that this will be a linear process into the future with gradual warming is probably, it. well, not probably, it is not realistic. We've already seen a big jump between 2007 and 2014 in the extent of sea ice, dramatic decrease in sea ice, which has had a dramatic impact on atmospheric circulation patterns, uh, there is a lot more that we need to be able to understand to do better than just a linear prediction of climate. And, and the assumption uh, that this all ends in 2100 and what happens in 2100 uh, is going to be the key is also not realistic. This will continue for many decades and hundreds of years in the future.
0: We've been talking to oceanographer John Englander. He's author of Moving to Higher Ground, Rising Sea Level and the Path Forward. Also with us, glaciologist and professor Paul Majewski, the director of the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine, and Christina Gearhart, an associate professor at the University of Hawaii. Her book, Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, comes out next year. Tina, John, Paul, thank you for speaking with us. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.